It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Have you seen changes in the dress codes at your job? You're not alone. Many workplaces across industries, especially in office settings, have adopted relaxed policies and guidelines about what employees can wear to work. That includes, for a little while anyway, Congress. Recently, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer made a short-lived change to the U.S. Senate dress code to allow senators to wear pretty much whatever they want on the floor. Republicans in Congress and some Democrats criticized the move, saying the Senate should be a place of professionalism and decorum. Democratic Senator John Fetterman from Pennsylvania came under particular scrutiny for wearing basketball shorts and hoodies to Capitol Hill. Here's Chris Hayes interviewing, uh, interviewing Senator Fetterman on MSNBC. Let me, let me start with the most important matter facing our country at this dire moment, which is the matter of the Senate dress code. Uh, which has recently been <laughs> recently been changed. Of course, of, of course, yes, yeah, no, of, of course. Um, I've heard about. I've heard that some people are upset about that, and, and you know, like I said, aren't there more important things we should be talking about rather than if if I dress like a slob? Days after the change, the Senate passed a bipartisan resolution reinstating business attire on the Senate floor. Our next guest is a fashion historian who says a recent tread toward casual wear at work isn't a reason to panic. Fashions come and go, but it does represent an interesting shift in our culture. You could join in at 800-642-1234. What is the dress code like where you work? Have standards loosened in recent years? Are you happy about a move to more casual and comfortable workwear in many settings? Or are there places where dressier professional clothes should make a comeback? And you work at a place where there's no choice. You wear the scrubs or the uniform or the safety gear. Are you glad you don't have to think about what to wear? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Linda Prebyshevsky is an associate professor of history at the University of Notre Dame, author of The Lost Art of Dress. Linda, welcome to Central Time. Hi, thanks, Rob. Most of us don't work in the U.S. Senate, Linda, but when this story broke, this is a a little while back, uh, do you think it was something worth uh, thinking about and paying some attention to? I was curious as to what the purpose was, um, because the Senate usually takes itself pretty darn seriously. (laughs) Um, And then I saw some pictures of Fetterman, and I thought, okay, I think I'm against uh, gym shorts in the Capitol. (laughs) Now, is this, and I've mentioned a couple times, it seems like more workplaces are getting a little more casual. Do you see that happening? And if so, why? Well, there was a shift um, towards what they used to call casual Friday um, in, I'm thinking, the late 90s, the early Mm -hmm. aughts. And the interesting thing was women actually found it annoying because they felt they now needed a third wardrobe right? Formal work wardrobe at home with kids, with family, informal wardrobe, and then something in between. Um, But now it's turned into sort of casual Friday all the time, casual every day. This is the thing, though, that I find interesting. It's also casual, even if you would like to dress up. Because there are places like Silicon Valley, where there are people who have quite frankly, enormous amounts of money. And yet they're not supposed to wear the beautifully tailored suit that they can afford, you know, because that's not what they're supposed to be wearing. Um, and, And I think there are different dress codes, but they might be 
just as annoying to some people um, as they as they were before they got really casual. Now, there are written dress codes for some businesses, but there are also sort of unwritten rules that people don't necessarily come in knowing. Is that something you've watched for it? And how complicated can that, can that make uh, things, especially for somebody who's new in the workforce? Yeah, it's it's. I mean, most of the people who kind of try to keep um, young people aware of what they need to think about, tell them you need to do, I, I teach at college, right? So you have young people going into careers, into offices for the first time. And the usual rule is try to dress a little better than you think you're supposed to, if only so people don't think you're slacking off. Uh, and then you sort of look around and you realize, okay, what what's appropriate, what's considered appropriate in this particular setting. You know, more creative places, they expect you to be more creative in your dressing, whereas places usually like financial places, right, they expect you to be more conservative because nobody going into a bank or an investment firm really wants to feel nervous about somebody's uh, appearance. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Michael is with us in Kaukana. Michael, hi. Hey, how you doing? Um, I remember uh, when I started my career in the professional world, I was required to wear, you know, uh, decent dress slacks, a tie, a dress shirt, and a jacket of some kind. And now I see people in work and in church in T-shirts and in cut off jeans with holes in them, I'm going like, it's gone too far to the casual side. Is How do we strike a balance between the two where people could be comfortable and yet be professional? Michael, thanks a lot for, for bringing that up. And Linda, there is a lot of room between, you know, a jacket and tie and those cut off jeans with holes in them. Yeah, no, and I've, I mean, obviously being female, I've never been forced to wear a tie against my will. Um, and I do know that there are a fair number of men who simply find uh, the way they fit around the neck to be uncomfortable. But I do think Mike is right that there is, there's got to be a happy medium um, where, let's put it this way. My rule is unless you clean garages for a living, you should probably be aiming a little higher than that simply in order to signal competence to people. And that's one of the things I always think about when I see college students going off to write the career fair on campus is one of the reasons they've put on a suit of some kind or a jacket is that that has traditionally been in a way that you said, I'm a person who is competent and in charge of something, and I'm ready to work for you. Thanks for that call, Michael. We're talking about dress codes at work, uh, whether they exist, how they've changed. Are we getting more casual? Should we get less casual? Linda Prebyshevsky is with us, Associate Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame. You can join in with your thoughts, maybe what you see at your workplace at 800-642-1234. Linda, I, I am a guy. I don't love wearing ties. Large Adam's apple doesn't work well for me. But I don't I don't know that guys get a real pity party here. Uh, can you talk about the challenges facing women in trying to decide how to go along with the dress code? Uh, it's a little easier for guys in many settings. No, it is. It's true because, quite frankly, in the early 19th century, this is how far back it goes. This is, there's actually someone who wrote a book called Men in Black. The, the color options 
and the decorative options for men narrowed, right? So the color palette got much narrower, much darker, except for playwear. But for serious business wear, right, we got the dark suit. Women have always had a much broader, wider range of clothing available to them. And because culturally, right, fashion has pushed women to expose more flesh and form through their clothing, it's often put them in this awkward situation where they want to be taken seriously as someone working for a living uh, and not someone dating for a living. And yet a lot of the options for women are for dating, right? They're for the big night out. They're not for the office. Um, and it's funny because we really lost, i.e., here's my book, The Lost Art of Dress, <laughs> a whole set of amazing suit options, which existed in the 1950s for women. Where I'm talking, they didn't just look like men's blazers. I actually think women moved into men's blazers in the 70s because they'd forgotten all the amazing options in suits and in um, what they called um, dress with jacket looks. But there used to be a very large array of pretty much formal, pretty much covered up, and yet extremely attractive kind of suit options for women. And nowadays, it's kind of, I have to say, sometimes it's sort of like every single woman is wearing those pair of black trousers. And you have to realize, I love color, I'm a dressmaker, and there are many other options that are dark <laughs> and serious enough colors, but they're not what I call boring black. Let's go back to our callers now. Nancy is with us in Milwaukee. Nancy, hi. Hello. Um, I recently had um, eye surgery, uh, plus many other visits at the Eye Institute here in Milwaukee, which is connected with Freighter Hospital. Everybody who examined me using very ultra-sophisticated pieces of instrumentation wore such sloppy clothes that I was very dismayed. Most of the people looked as if they had been brought off the street and given 20 minutes of instruction. And I think that this is because hospitals now have the feeling that all patients get into a panic and get elevated blood pressure if they're treated by somebody wearing a white lab coat and very professional looking clothing. And so they've gone overboard. And the people who treated me had uh, crumpled T-shirts, stained and dirty jeans, jeans with holes in the knees, just deplorable clothing. And I will never go back there again because in an effort to calm patients' nerves, they're, they're allowing, they're forcing people who probably would have preferred to have dressed more in a professional manner, but they're forcing them to come to work in overalls. I mean, Na I gotcha. Nancy, I hope the recovery is going okay, by the way. Linda, uh, Nancy, not wild about see seeing people uh, underdressed in that medical setting. Well, um, to me, the part that really uh, dismayed me the most was people who didn't look like they were clean in the medical center. I mean, one of the things that's really obvious if you look historically at nurses and doctors has always been, right, the original outfits were all white, right? And the idea was, man, those things look bleached. They looked really, really clean. They looked really, really hygienic. Um, and then we saw the move to scrubs, where everyone started wearing scrubs. 
Um, I'm presuming simply because they're more comfortable, but uh, I think I myself would agree that I do want people to at least look really clean if it's in any kind of medical care setting. Thanks a lot for that call, Nancy. We're talking to Linda Prebyshevsky, Associate Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame. We're talking about the rise of casual clothing in the workplace. When it gets too casual, in your opinion, and what, if anything, it says about society, you could join in at 800-642-1234. What do you wear to work? If you could wave a wand and change your workplace's dress code, what changes would you make? Do you have no choice about what to wear to work? Because there's a uniform or a scrubs requirement or you name it. You glad you don't have to think about what to wear. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Right now we're picking up the conversation with fashion historian Linda Prebyshevsky about how a lot of workplaces, especially offices, are relaxing their dress codes. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. Did you ever have casual Friday at a workplace? Did you love it or dread it? What do you think? Do you have examples of where people you think are overdressed or underdressed when you encounter them at work? Join in at 800-642-1234. Back to your calls now. Dave is with us in Sturgeon Bay. Dave, hello. Yeah, hi. Uh, I was a teacher, and uh, the administrator we had was really big on if you're going to be a professional, you have to act professional. You should look professional. And it was really interesting. It did garner respect from the students. I think it made a difference. And it's, uh, if you can't walk in like a rag doll and expect to get respect from that. And it is a part of the whole picture. And I, I hated dressing up. I, I'm a very casual, but it made a difference. And Dave, in this context, did did it mean you wore a suit up in front of the class or just like nice clothes but short of a suit? Nice clothes, no jeans. Uh, many of the many of the males, they, the guys were wearing ties and things like that. I I had a non-traditional where it was a possible danger. I did not wear a tie, but I never wore jeans, and it was uh, it was it was good. I I hated it, but it worked. <laughs> I think it. I think they need. I, I think you need to garner respect, and you would look different from the students. You were not them. Uh, gotcha. Dave, thanks a lot. Linda, this idea that uh, as a teacher or in other settings, we are addressing uh, to set ourselves apart from the people we're encountering in our workday. Yeah. I mean, the when people in the past were taught how to dress, and they literally were taught how to dress, that's what my book is about, one of the things the um, dress advisors said is, look, when you're out in a public place, and the workplace is one of those places, it's not an intimate setting. It's not where you reveal yourself to people. So in some ways, your clothing needs to be more formal because it's sending the message, hi, we're all here to do something, in particular, work. Um, and the other thing I think of as a teacher is... Um, there is an institutional power imbalance, right? And to me, sort of like not having students call me by my first name, um, the fact that I am not trying to dress like them either is part of it. Um, we're not on the same kind of level institutionally. I'm their professor. And um, clothing does send a message, as as Dave said in his call, um, and clearly his students got that message. 
Dave, thanks for the call. Jeff joins us now in Superior. Jeff, hello. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, my senior year at Notre Dame, I was a, volu- I was a fireman. I uh, wasn't volunteer, was paid, but we didn't have a uniform. And I told them when I graduated, I wish Notre Dame Fire Department had a uniform. Well, years later as an alum, suddenly there's a corner in the bookstore where you could get all this Notre Dame Fire Department apparel. <laughs> and I was like, I wish I had that when I was, you know, doing the job. Because I always admired Star Trek. You know, they had a uniform. They were on duty. <laughs> and I always liked, uh, you know, the military uniform looks mm-hmm. looks really good. I think a person looks sharp when you have a uniform. Jeff, I'm sorry you didn't get royalties because that was your idea for that uniform. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, uniforms answer a lot of these questions, Linda, for, for better or worse. Right, they do. And they also send a message about being a member of something bigger than yourself, right? You're a member of a core. Um, It's funny because very often people will say, well, fashion's for women. Only women care about fashion. And I point out that actually military men feel very strongly about their uniforms. And sometimes it's just because they want their uniforms to function. Right. But if you've ever seen the Marines in their dress uniforms, you know, they also care about the style of it and and how good looking it is as well. Thanks for the call, Jeff, at 800-642-1234. Looking at changing dress codes at work. Linda Prebyshevsky stays with us, Associate Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame. We'll go now to Matt in Waukesha. Matt, hi. Hello. I was something you hit on just a few moments ago. Uh, the idea of this workplace um, dress code, I think, is a part of a larger public versus private sort of space, which you kind of just mentioned. Um, you know, and and it probably comes from a good place of wanting to try to break down some barriers of what you know is a stereotype of who's dressing this way and what what spaces. But I think it also loses its function, like you said, of um, you know, kind of, you know, yeah, like the uniform is a great example of that, actually, too. Like, you know, who is, you know, this, who is, who is the firefighter, who is a paramedic, who is a policeman, if everybody wears a jacket that says that on the back or, mm-hmm. or, or whatnot, or whether it's teacher, student. Or... Matt, I gotcha. Thanks a lot for the call. And Linda, that blurring of public private. Well, we had this period where many people in lines of work were working at home. Uh, yes. And that may have, how much did that change our, our thinking about clothing? Um, I think it did because there were a whole lot of people who um, did or did not dress. I actually dressed to Zoom classes, so (laughs) my position was nothing had really changed. Of course, I was trying to reassure, right, a group of undergraduates who was going through one of the most confusing times in their education. Um, But I was also thinking about uh, the fact that I do think there are people who got sick of the not dressing up at all. Um, I think there's a reason why once restaurants opened, people wanted to go out and be in them and they wanted to go out at night and they wanted to be able to celebrate. And usually when you actually celebrate some event, you want to wear something special to mark that occasion. So I think I mean, and to me, the art of dress is actually the ability to dress for everything from, yes, I'm going to clean my garage today or walk my dog or do my gardening too. I am ready for a formal, beautiful event where I get to wear something that's special that I don't get to wear every day. 
Thanks for that call. Now, I think sometimes, Linda, when people talk about uh, things like uh, changing dress codes, there could be, on the one hand, a sense that, okay, society's in decline, kids today, on the other hand, like, uh, from the other end of the spectrum, come on, give it up, things change, whatever. Uh, Where do you fall on that huge (laughs) spectrum? Well, I um, I kind of do what the dress advisors of old said, which was I look across all the fashion possibilities um, and I choose those that I think best suit my life um, and my body and my coloring. And um, I get to have that choice. Um, and one of the things, too, I think, especially I'm an older woman uh, now, um, is that I do actually prefer to have an emphasis on dignity rather than an emphasis on following the latest thing because I've seen a lot of the latest things coming and going. Um, and what was very fashionable in you know one year, five years later, was looked at as perfectly silly. So I'd like to pick what actually works for me out of all the possibilities. Um, and then enjoy it. Enjoy it as fashion and enjoy it as clothing. Linda, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Hey, you're welcome. It was fun to be here. That's Linda Prebyshevsky, uh, Associate Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame. She joined us for a look at the recent trend toward more casual dress codes at many workplaces. Hey, one more comment. Frances and Milton uh, wanted to say she thinks big business casual could be nice slacks with a nice blouse for women, nice pullover sweater for men. Also, I have a note she would like to know what Rob is wearing. Well, like every day here, full tuxedo, top hat, tails, my little monocle. No, I am very casual. Radio is a very Rob-friendly profession. Intact, usually blue jeans, black jeans today, though, mixing things up. And usual button-up shirt, but untucked. Because that's just how I roll. I kind of stumbled into that. So the height of, am I a slob? I'm looking to Sarah here. No, I'm not a slob, but I'm not, you know, dressed in a suit on any given day or if I can avoid it, any day. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. Listening to Central Time, I'm Rob Ferret. The 24 hour news cycle has become a controversial mainstay of American political life, but TV news hasn't always been this way. In the early days of cable television, there was a lot of optimism about how it could be a force for public participation and democracy. Here's CNN founder Ted Turner announcing the launch of the channel back in 1979. This news service will be called the Cable News Network and we'll program continually updated half-hour segments of national news, business news, sports, and features 24 hours a day. I know that we will succeed, and I pledge to you that we will not let the American public down. The rise of CNN is just one part of a much bigger story about cable television and how it came to be a dominant force in American politics. Our next guest chronicles that history in her new book, which shows how cable TV in many ways failed to live up to its political promises and ultimately set the stage for the fracturing and polarization we see today. You can join in at 800-642-1234. 
Do you watch news programming on cable TV, one network, lots of networks, or do you steer clear of it? Either way, why? Has TV been a big part of your own political identity? Has that changed over the years? Were you around for the early days of the rise of 24-hour cable news channels? How did your political viewing change at that point? Were you ever a big C-SPAN fan? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Catherine Kramer Brownell is an associate professor of history at Purdue University. Her newest book is called 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. Catherine, welcome to Central Time. Thank you so much for having me. You trace the the technology, the spread of cable TV, going back as far as the late 1940s, which I didn't know. I want to fast forward a little bit to that moment uh, when CNN and around the same time-ish, C-SPAN come around. Remind us what the TV news landscape looked like before those big uh, cable networks came along. Yeah, that's really a transformative moment for the cable industry. C-SPAN launches in 1979 and then CNN the following year. And before that, people got their news on television in, you know, 22 minutes, maybe an hour in a documentary series, but it was very limited. And this was part of the problem. People across the political spectrum could agree that having so little time devoted to informing the public about public affairs meant that they weren't getting the information they needed, that viewpoints were, um, inherently excluded, especially if they are on the far left or the far right of the political spectrum. And so it's this effort to change news coverage um, that really motivates a diverse range of people to, to see the possibilities of cable television and having a more expansive dial and having more programs that didn't have to just cater to those half hour or one hour time slots. And now CNN, it's become such an institution, it's hard to think of it as a scrappy underdog, but it and some other uh, parts of the cable uh, content and uh, cable industry really throwing a lot of elbows out there trying to break what they claimed was in effect a monopoly of the TV networks. Can you talk about how that that played out in the early days? Yeah, during the 1960s and especially into the 1970s, uh, network broadcast television had a monopoly. It was regulated by the FCC to control and to dominate the television landscape. And initially, cable TV emerged as simply a way to extend the signals of broadcasting to areas that couldn't access them uh, but because of terrain or distance. Um, and so it really replicated and expanded broadcasting fare. But as frustrations with with broadcasting mounted, cable TV operators realized that there is a business opportunity in playing up the limitations of broadcasting and selling cable not as an extension of broadcasting, but as an alternative, as a competitor, which could give more voice to these demands for diversity of perspectives on television. Yeah, there was a political workshop. You start off the book, actually, in 1984, discussing how broadcasting had failed democracy and how cable could save it. You know, that was the argument from the cable industry. Were there wider hopes from people uh, in the political world and beyond that, yes, this is going to boost our public participation? This is going to make democracy better because we have more sources of information. 
I think there absolutely were hopes and there were many people uh, within the cable industry and activists, uh, many grassroots activists outside of the industry that truly believed that decentralizing information would enhance democracy because it would get so many different viewpoints and, um, and different perspectives out there to shape um, conversations, uh, to shape American culture, but to shape American politics as well. But ultimately, what happens is that this, this democratic promise um, really becomes a public relations tool by the cable operators who see that highlighting the problems of democracy and the potential, the democratic potential of cable is good for business. It's good for business um, uh, because it allows them to, to craft some very effective um, relationships with elected officials. C-SPAN, for example, is a nonprofit, but the way that that Brian Lamb got people, uh, cable operators, to buy into that concept was he understood that he told them that if you want elected officials to know what cable is and to work to invest or to expand its reach, you need to give them a stake in it to 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 bring cable to uh, Capitol Hill, and that's exactly um, what what C-SPAN ultimately does. And so there's this this effort to shape regulatory policies and to really advance more favorable regulations by forging these relationships with the elected officials, but also just making money um, by selling, getting people to buy in, getting subscribers to buy in, that they can find community and civic participation, and perhaps more importantly, sports and entertainment on the cable dial. So it's a multi-pronged effort that's really about expanding the business of cable television. Talking to Catherine Kramer Brownell about her new book, 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. You can join in with your thoughts, your questions, maybe your memories at 800-642-1234. Catherine, you were just talking about how the cable industry was reaching out to politicians. You also cover a lot in the book how politicians started to realize that, hey, these things are changing the game. Uh, They're changing our PR, our outreach. What were some of the first shoots of that as people realized what they could do with cable? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So cable does open up TV to new voices. And overwhelmingly, it's those who are frustrated, who are not finding opportunities on network broadcasting programs, uh, that they are turning to cable out of desperation. And, and so there are a variety of different experimental strategies, um, ones deployed by some fringe people, especially you see this um, in the Republican Party in the 1980s, where figures like Newt Gingrich, um, or a minority, uh, kind of a fringe member of the minority party um, in Congress at this time. And and he's using something like C-SPAN. He's manipulating the camera angle, manipulating coverage to get his ideas out there and to build a national following. He's not using cable to talk to his constituents back in Georgia. He's trying to create conflict on C-SPAN. Frequently and overwhelmingly, initially, this happens to an empty chamber where he's making these grand speeches, making um, viewers think that he's, you know, calling out opponents and they're they're scared to challenge him. But in fact, he's talking to an empty chamber. And I think it's an example of kind of the political manipulations and calculations over how to use cable TV are very much at play with politicians thinking about how they can use it to their political advantage, not necessarily to inform constituents, but to really help um, them gain more political power. That's Brianna Caller. Chris is with us in Fairchild. Chris, hi. 
Hi. Um, so I, I just try to be careful here with the use of language surrounding what we see nowadays when we say something that's such and such news organization. News would imply something that's factual, perhaps trustworthy, fact-checked, and then more often than not, it is opinion and editorial uh, kind of pointed towards a specific audience and really an, an unbiased, you know, factual bias of what's going on. Chris, thanks a lot for the call. And an interesting point, Catherine, the blurring that happens over time on cable between uh, news and, as Chris says, uh, opinion and editorial. Chris is exactly right. And that that blurring happens over, you know, really from the 1960s through the, the 1990s. You have a triumph of that blurring by the 1990s. And part of the reason that that um, becomes blurred is because you have a shift in the idea of the public interest. Increasingly, the public interest, uh, which used to be why upholding this public interest requirement, used to be why network broadcast news programs existed as proof that they were serving, they had this civic role. That ultimately fades away as um, as um, uh, the media landscape becomes deregulated and the consumer interest becomes conflated with the public interest. And then it becomes all about what is going to sell, what's going to get ratings, what's going to generate attention rather than necessarily what is going to inform people about the world around them. Um, and it, there's this really interesting moment I chart in the book where you have uh, Walter Cronkite raising concern um, about the, the, you know, the, the consumer interest overwhelming the the um the the public interest and um and one cable operator john malone says no the people will demand the market will demand accuracy um and and uh and factual information but i think that we've seen that that's not necessarily what has happened chris thanks for the call we're talking to katherine kramer brownell from purdue university looking at her new book it's called 24 7 politics cable television and the fragmenting of america from watergate to fox news you can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you think the uh, 24-hour news cycle has been helpful or harmful when it comes to informing the public? Are there any cable channels or programs that you think have been a force for good in American politics at some point? Or do you think it's been mostly negative over the last few decades? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We continue our talk with historian Catherine Kramer Brownell about her new book, 24-7 Politics, Cable, Television, and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Were you there for the major moments in political history that aired on cable TV? Do you remember the switch when uh, cable TV got big, especially in the news? Do you watch any of the big networks now? Join in at 800-642-1234. Let's go back to your calls. Mark is with us in Green Bay. Mark, hi. How's it going? I was wondering uh, what she thought of 
how the elimination of the fairness doctrine by Reagan had an effect on this. And then also Fox just got sued by Dominion for $700 million. How will stuff like that keep things like Fox in check? Mark, thanks for the call. Two big points there, Catherine. First of all, you do in the book talk a a lot about the fairness doctrine and its passing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the fairness doctrine is part of that the the embrace of deregulation, um, uh, the reliance on the marketplace uh, to deliver for democratic debate. And, um, you know, it's interesting, um, Mark Fowler, the FCC chair under Reagan, you know, tries to eliminate the fairness doctrine. And, you know, there's a bipartisan coalition that comes together to try to ingrain it in law via legislation. But ultimately, Ronald Reagan vetoes um, that bill. Um, and, and he, again, he relies, he says that we just need to allow ideas to compete in the marketplace. And so the, the fairness doctrine is really significant for the broadcast industry more broadly. And that's where you see its um, first ramifications. It allows, um, it kind of frees broadcasters. Cable operators weren't always um, regulated by that as well. It was very murky as to whether it applied to cable operators or not. But it allows broadcasters, notably radio um, uh, hosts like Rush Limbaugh, to kind of really double down on partisanship, double down on some of the, the, the tactics that proved really effective, like Newt Gingrich stoking outrage, to do that not just um, for maybe an hour at the end of the the congressional day, but for an entire program um, nonstop. And so it allows um, this this more partisan programming to tap into, again, the marketplace and to show that it can be very lucrative. And, And I think that's what you see, you know, Fox News emerges in 1996. It's looking at um, um, uh, Roger Ailes and Rupert Murdoch um, are looking at Rush Limbaugh. They're looking at how he's able to use these um, these tactics to stir outrage um, and to make a lot of money. And, and so that's really the, the business model um, behind Fox News. And I think that with the Dominion um, lawsuit, you see some, you know, this level of accountability that the market had not been able to provide. Um, and, I, and so I think that, and it also kind of showed that Fox is pandering to what they think that um, their, their TV subscribers want, that they will do anything to try to keep their loyalty. And this, again, um, is a product of relying on the marketplace to deliver for democracy. Thanks for the call. We'll go to John now in Eau Claire. John, hi. Hey, I just wanted to share that. One time I asked my 90-year-old father-in-law what was the biggest change that he ever saw in his lifetime. And he said the 24-hour news cycle and all the the, uh, stress that it caused and all the potential for propaganda that it caused. And I remember being a little boy, probably in second, third grade, probably 1972, and I heard about the communists in Russia and how the little kids were propagandized by state media. And I remember feeling sorry for them. I mean, I truly felt sorry for these kids being propagandized in communist Russia. And today, the free uh, cable media but study after study shows that over 80% is tilted one way. John, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, John's uh, father, Lassa, says the 24-hour news cycle, the biggest change he saw in his lifetime. Catherine, uh, you, you'd make the case it is a pretty big deal. 
It, it really is significant because it's dramatically expanding the information that people have about the world around them. It's really decentralizing the news. And, and there are some benefits to this. Um, it, again, it brings new voices, new perspectives. The network broadcast television newsrooms run, you know, with Walter Cronkite um, and at the center stage. Those were incredibly exclusionary. They were elitist. They, um, they really did kind of adhere to a perspective of white heterosexual men. Um, and so opening up the news um, really creates all of these possibilities. Um, but again, it's always driven um, by, by the search for profits. Even Ted Turner, that great clip you played at the beginning where CNN is launching to promise to deliver understanding and peace, Ted Turner wanted to make money. And so he's really finding different ways to do news on the cheap. So he, he wants to make news the star is what he says. He doesn't, doesn't want to pay someone like Walter Cronkite. Well, when there's breaking news, this this provides people with access to information. But then what happens when there's not breaking news or there's not a crisis? Then you have the reliance on a lot of this commentary and more opinion-based shows. And that's where, again, to the earlier point, you get the conflating of news and entertainment that can um, have, have um, a, a, it, it can really undermine um, uh, public knowledge. Talking to Catherine Kramer Brownell about her new book, 24-7 Politics, Cable Television, and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. I want to get to the fragmenting, Catherine, before we run out of time. You talk about uh, in the book the incentive structure for politicians Instead of trying to give a more general message to reach as much of the public as they can, you see cable changing the incentive to reaching a particular audience with particular messages. How does that change things? Yeah, so the, the book really charts that you have this shift from broadcasting, right, uh, trying to appeal broad to broad audiences um, through radio and television. Um, and so someone like uh, Franklin Roosevelt is using the fireside chats to try to build um, popular support for his programs. Um, and he's, you know, again, uh, circumventing critics to speak directly to audiences. But again, the whole idea is to make his programs more likable. Um, cable is a little bit different it, because it relies on, on more narrow segments um, and, and mobilizing very vocal, um, narrow, smaller segments of the population. Um, it's all about cultivating loyalty, not necessarily likability, um, loyalty to individual brands, uh, loyalty to individual lifestyles, infusing that with politics. And so it makes it more about kind of connecting to what is seen as the quote unquote right demographic. Those people that'll be more passionate, that'll be more engaged about politics and not and kind of eschewing that responsibility of reaching everybody and that that desire to to build um, to build consensus around ideas, candidates and policies. And I think a lot of people would point at social media and the Internet for doing the things you just said. You move that dial back a lot further with cable TV that set us up, uh, it seems, for the fragmented politics we have today. Exactly. I think that the way in which social media has unfolded, this search for, you know, anything that will generate ratings and clicks and what what does that? Um, you can see the business model time and time again that shows that getting people angry um, is what can really motivate that business. Um, it's not necessarily encouraging, um, uh, you know, an informed conversation um, or, you know, even a respectful conversation in any capacity. It's really tapping into 
um, that, that kind of cultivating different brands, different identities. And, you know, one of the things that cable introduces is it shows how profitable echo chambers can be. And, and I think that that, um, that, that really is at the root of some of our uh, polarization today in both media and politics. Catherine, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me and for the conversation. That was Catherine Kramer Brownell, Associate Professor of History at Purdue University. We've been talking about her new book. It's called 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. <laughs>